If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From mice to great whales, it now appears that animals may also inherit socially acquired characteristics along with their genes. This week, our speakers delve into the philosophical questions that arise from evolution after Darwin. To what extent is the theory of natural selection somehow a relic and about to be replaced by a new science that includes cultural evolution. So to what extent is the theory of natural selection somehow a relic of the past and too narrow for innovations today? Do we need to include cultural evolution and conceptual innovation? And does this mean a paradigm shift for evolutionary theory? Asking these questions, we have Professor of Philosophy at CUNY in New York with a doctorate in genetics and two PhDs in the philosophy of science, Massimo Pagliucci. He'll be joined by Professor of the Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge, previously a member of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics and author of The Meaning of Science, Tim Lewins. And finally, we have comparative and developmental psychologist with an expertise in primatology and a focus on empathy, language and social learning, Zana Clay. After listening to this week's episode, please do head over to our website at www.iitv. You'll find our latest podcasts and playlists created for you, such as last week's amazing interview with Timothy Williamson and Saul Kripke, which is now online. To make sure you never miss those episodes, please do subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for listening and look forward to hear what you think. Back now to David Malone, who hosts this week's episode. Can our current theories capture the full richness of evolution? Tim, do you want to start us off? <laughs> so it would be nuts to say that our full, uh, our current theories can capture the full richness of evolution. That would be an example of the worst kind of scientific hubris, just like those physicists who thought that physics was over at the end of the 19th century and then got bashed by relativity theory and quantum mechanics. There are, however, some really interesting developments going on in evolutionary biology right now. Uh, there's extremely interesting attention, not just to genes, but to the mushy insides of organisms and the difference that that makes to adaptation. There's extremely interesting work, such as the work that Zana does, for example, on cultural evolution, a realization that uh, differences between organisms, uh, including adaptive differences between organisms, are often explained by what they learn rather than by the genes that they pass on. That said, a lot of that work doesn't really uh, challenge 
uh, evolutionary theory all that much, it seems to me. In fact, in some ways, some of that work is extremely conservative with respect to the current models or the sort of more traditional models that we have. So a lot of work in cultural evolution, for example, yes, it talks about the interesting ways in which animals learn from each other, but when you ask, where do those learning dispositions come from in the first place? The answer is, it's just more natural selection acting on genetic variation. And some of the really radical views in these areas also credit learning with an active role in shaping how we learn, as well as just what we learn. In brief, evolution uh, is has, it's a moving target. We shouldn't think that what's going on right now is this kind of key moment of revolution. Darwin's theory itself, changed in all kinds of ways compared with what we have now. But yes, there are interesting things happening right now, but no revolution, it seems to me. Okay. Massimo, what do you think? Can our current theories capture the full richness of evolution? I, I, I take the current theories to mean kind of the gene-centered approach. Right. No. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, no, they don't. And for the, the same reasons we, ju we just heard, that is, you know, no scientific theory re really, not, not at the moment at least, not in the history of science, has ever captured everything. Uh, you know, that's true in modern fundamental physics, just, just as, as much as it was at the end of the 19th century, and it's certainly true in biology. What I do think is that one of the things that has characterized biology so far, this, this, this could change, uh, but unlike other fields such as physics, uh, there hasn't been any complete overturn of essentially Darwinian ideas. Uh, you know, we got the evolution of biology started with Darwin, essentially, and what Darwin said still goes. Uh, more complex, more mechanisms, more phenomena, uh, lots of stuff that Darwin obviously did not know or could not know about, uh, but the foundations are still the same, as opposed to, say, uh, in physics, where, you know, Newtonian mechanics is out the window. Uh, when once that general relativity came in. Um, it's used now only for, for practical purposes because it gives good approximation, but the, the picture of the, of the universe that, it, that Newtonian mechanics gives us is in fact wrong and it's been abandoned. Nothing like that yet has happened in biology. Now this could be because biology is a field that is younger than physics uh, in that respect, uh, or it may be because that one really did get something fundamental right, and we're just building on, uh, on what he's done. Well, there's a slight difference in saying he was, he, he, he was right, but did he capture all that there is? No. Right. Is some of the stuff that he might have not have been aware of trivial or important? I think it's important. Marvellous. There is something to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure you're glad. <laughs> Zana, what, what right, do you yeah. Think? I mean, to be honest, we, I think we all agree um, here that I think that we shouldn't ever assume any theory can explain everything, particularly in the complex world we live in. And the fact that the more stuff we study in terms of evolution and other aspects of, of, of biology, the more we realize there's more and more questions that need to be answered. And so I think it would be a bad scientist to assume that we have all the answers. We wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a job if that was the case. What I do think, though, is that while there's a lot of richness that we still need to understand, I think to me, the Darwinian principle of natural selection does go a, it seems to be going a very long way to explain some of the ultimate um, principles of evolution that we're still continuing to see. And what I sort of feel as an empirical researcher is that um, we've got this really strong basis um, that I, I don't feel that uh, there's any strong evidence yet to suggest that we should move away from or abandon theories that we're now using to understand evolution have massively expanded since Darwin. Um, there's a huge expanse in our understanding. 
Uh, and, it's, and evolutionary theory is moving in all sorts of interesting directions. So I think even seeing it as this unitary thing is, is, is not really accurate. Um, but I do think that there's some things like, for example, the cultural lives of animals, which is something I study, uh, is not something that was ever really truly appreciated, how profoundly important that might be in shaping behavior. So I do think we need to expand theories, but um, I don't find um, so far, maybe we can discuss that, whether we need to abandon what we've built so far um, rather than expand our, our appreciation of these, these other effects that perhaps weren't explained um, when, for example, the modern synthesis of evolution was first developed. Right. But when you, I mean, you study, you mentioned the cultural evolution of yeah. animals or empathy. Yeah. A sort of very reductionistic version of that. Say, well, there must be a gene for empathy. I or, mean, yeah. But, but do they inherit empathy? But nobody's empathy? saying that. I don't know any scientists that would, would say that. No, but it's often characterised oh, that way. Do you? <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. if they do, <laughs> oh, I do, then I oh, think, okay. okay, I disagree with those kind of scientists. Well, I'm not going to necessarily name okay, names, but, but I mean, you know, I think Richard Dawkins. Like, sorry, okay. I'm never naming names. But. <laughs> well, I do have a problem with kind of reductionism to that extent and like, genetic <laughs> okay. determinism, but I don't think that's what most people in the field are debating. Okay, but yeah. that's fine. But it is, I suppose, that ghost of Richard yeah. Dawkins. There's that, a bit that, of a PR crisis, I think. There is a PR crisis, yeah. and that's maybe what we're here to discuss, that there is that um, sort of fierce reductionism yeah. that says, look, if it, unless there's a gene for it, it does, just doesn't but, exist. But anyone seriously under, uh, studying these processes knows that, like, it, it's, it, it, like gene genetic evolution doesn't even work in this way, and we... Like genetic, like theories of evolution, I mean, this is areas of Tim and Massimo can develop on, would never, uh, would never dismiss the role that the environment and development play, I think, on, on shaping these behaviors, at least to my knowledge. And, and that's why someone like myself, I study both proximate mechanisms of, say, how children learn um, from their environment and how they transmit culture, uh, as well as these ultimate questions about why we have culture. Can, what, can I disagree what, a little bit? Yeah, sure. That'd be my guess. Elaborate, elaborate on the disagreement. Yeah. I get in the disagreement queue as well. Yes, All please. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Just take a number. Great. So, um, I guess my take is I wish that the field was quite that so, sort okay, of settled maybe. as you yeah. you be, you've been describing. But you know, I remember being uh, very until fairly recently, before I moved full time to philosophy, uh, into a one of the most prestigious evolution departments in the country, mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, and having to fight really hard okay. with some of my colleagues yeah. uh, for them to admit that things like development, oh, really? uh, phenotypic plasticity, yeah. behavioral plasticity, and so on and so forth are in fact not just minor annoyances mm. that need to be accounted for, yeah. but are major players. Yeah. In, in I mean, I guess I, I come from, I'm lucky in a way that I come from a field of comparative and developmental, so I'm sort of very right. much slap bang in the right. middle. It's so. built in, right. Yeah. right. Mm -hmm. The difference is yeah. you spend a lot of time with animals and he spends a lot of time with, with colleagues. academics. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, who can you learn more from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim, yeah. did you want so to? So I want to be even-handed by disagreeing with Massimo and Zanna at the same time. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Excellent. So they've, they've both portrayed this image of a fairly static evolutionary theory whereby Darwin says a bunch of things, and then there's a sort of broad inheritance up until maybe a few years ago. Uh, and Massimo's saying, that's a bit weird, right? Do we really think Darwin's right about everything? And Zanna's kind of saying, well, maybe Darwin's really onto something. That's why the ideas have persisted for so long. It's really important, I think, to understand that Darwin is in many ways quite different, I think, to the theory that we have now. So Darwin wrote 
whole books that barely mentioned natural selection at all. He simply didn't think it was relevant for studying large amounts of what we'd now think of as evolutionary processes. And when he did write about natural selection, he really understood it, I think, in a way that's quite different to the way that we understand selection now. He puts extreme stress, for example, on struggle for existence, right, which you just don't get in modern theorizing. And then since then, we've seen the, the mathematization of evolutionary theory. We've seen periods in the 60s and 70s where people seriously thought that maybe selection wasn't really important after all. Um, we've basically seen a whole bunch of quite significant shifts in evolutionary theorizing, I think. And, and we need to realize that when we start thinking that maybe now is a revolutionary moment. There have been a series okay. of revolutionary moments. All right, well, look, let's, no, I, I agree. Matthew, let's tell us what, in the, the kind of experiences you've had, what, what do you see as being wrong with the current, I don't know how to say it, not the current theory, but perhaps the way that the current theory is sometimes defended or put forward in its less tolerant form? So uh, the way I see it, here's the basic disagreement. By current theory, usually people uh, refer to the modern synthesis, what you, yeah. you just mentioned a minute ago. The modern synthesis was a uh, sort of crystallization of evolutionary theory after Darwin. It happened over a period of two or three decades between the 1920s and the 1940s. It did include the mathematization of evolutionary theory, which was definitely not present in Darwin. Um, and it was mostly focused on uh, what we today call population and statistical genetics. So it was, that, that was most of what was going on there. There were other things, paleontology got in, uh, developmental biology got left out. There was a number of, of things going on, but basically that's what it was. So think of that as sort of the standard model in evolutionary theory. Even today, if you pick up a modern textbook in uh, evolutionary biology, that's pretty much what you get. Now, uh, there have been, I agree with him, a number of ups and downs, even including Darwinism before the synthesis, for instance. But over the last, let's say, two decades plus, an increasing number of people have, have been making noise to the fact that uh, the conceptual framework of the modern synthesis is insufficient. It's okay as it is, as far as it goes, but it's insufficient to account for a number of both conceptual in, uh, uh, innovations in, in the field and especially a lot of empirical uh, research. Like what? Give like some what? examples. So uh, conceptual innovations include things like uh, the, the, the idea of evolvability, the notion that evolutionary mechanisms themselves are subject to evolution over a period of time, that there are some major transitions in evolutionary periods, for instance, uh, the invention of multicellularity uh, made it possible for evolution to go to by, in, by way of very different mechanisms that were not possible before. So those are conceptual innovations. There's also a lot of empirical discoveries. For one thing, uh, most of the modern synthesis happened before the, the, the molecular revolution. So everything that has molecular, is molecular biology was not present in that, and there's a lot of weird stuff that came out of that field. But also in ecology and evolutionary biology, I mentioned phenotypic plasticity, for instance, which is this notion that the same exact uh, genotype can actually produce very different uh, uh, morphologies and very different behaviors depending on the range of environments in which an organism, to which an organism is subjected. That was my field of, of research uh, in biology. So it, there's been a sense over the last couple of decades that all of this stuff somehow needs to be reassembled in, in, in a coherent fashion. And I think the major debate, um, to try to be as fair as possible, is one group that refers to this new thing as the extended evolutionary synthesis, and as you pointed out a minute ago, I definitely count myself in that, in that group. Uh, we think that there is enough conceptual and empirical new stuff that we are really talking about a major enlargement of 
the original theory, whereby the original anomine Darwinism at this point, but the, the extended synthesis, which was itself an extension of the original Darwinism. Uh, our critics say, no, 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 all of this stuff was actually implied or can be reconciled easily with the population genetic framework, and we don't really need anything more okay. than that. Does any, uh, any of the three of you want to mention epigenetics? Epigenetics? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't just say the word. That's not helpful. I can say that bit. Damn. Come on. Yeah, yeah, sure. You mean you want us to use the word epigenetics? No, I want you to mention it. Right? <laughs> mention, yes. I was yeah. taking him literally. <laughs> so, I, I mean, okay, let, let, me say, let me say a tiny bit about this. Uh, and, and I think this, this will sort of point towards maybe a bit of a halfway house between the two camps that Massimo's pointed out. So, um, so, so, so Massimo's suggesting that there are a bunch of people who say, we need this new set of conceptual foundations because of all of these important new phenomena that we're finding out about. And that might include things like epigenetic inheritance, roughly yeah. speaking, forms of inheritance that are not just mediated by differences in DNA sequence. At the same time, you've got another bunch of people who are saying, there's nothing new here. We can fit this all into the Darwinian paradigm. And in fact, some of those people are simply denying that epigenetic inheritance is a phenomenon with any interesting evolutionary consequences. Can I now, does everyone know what epigenetics means? Do you, do you want us to expand on it a little tiny bit? Okay. Spell it out a little do bit you wanna, more. You're better sure. at this than me. Uh, uh, well, that's an assumption, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, I guess we'll test empirically in a second. Uh, <laughs> this now means I'll have to explain it after Massimo, and then you'll see whether it works. So, so uh, I assume we know what inheritance means, right? So genetics uh, is about inheritance of characteristics of organisms. And we found out uh, in the 1940s and 50s that, the, that, that the, the material that was inherited is actually DNA or variations of, uh, of that, RNA and things like that. Uh, so there is, that's, that, that's what started the, the molecular revolution. That's what brought genetics into essentially the major, arguably the major uh, biological science of the 20th century. It turns out, however, that people have been making sort of noises to the fact, for a long time, to the fact that there are a lot of other, a number of other inheritance mechanisms that don't go through the genes. These are generally referred to as epigenetics, as meaning literally beyond the gene. Um, in particular, uh, these include things like um, methylation groups. These are, these are chemicals that attach themselves, simple chemicals, methyl groups that attach themselves to the DNA uh, and may, may turn on or off or modulate the action of certain genes. Apparently, these patterns, some of these patterns, some of the, of the times, get inherited by the next generation, and that has effect above and beyond the effect of the genes. Uh, there are uh, proteins called histones that actually pack the DNA into a chromosome. Those also tend to be inherited uh, structures, so this is a kind of structural inheritance that has effect uh, on, the new on the next generation. That's how it got started. And then there are more fancy or more esoteric kinds of genetic, uh, sorry, extra genetic inheritance, such as niche construction. This is an ecological concept uh, that has to deal with the fact that, that the certain animals actually build their environments, and then they transmit that ability of building environment in a particular way to the next generation. Part of that information doesn't follow the genetic uh, channels it's just inherited in terms of structural materials. Think of beavers, uh, for instance, you know, building uh, dams and things like that. So the problem with epigenetics, I think, is that um, it's a highly heterogeneous phenomenon. While if we're talking about genetics, DNA, it's, it's limited to DNA, RNA, and, and a few other little things that are very well defined, 
in terms of epigenetics, we're talking about a potentially huge amount of, uh, of uh, phenomena that don't really have much to do with, with each other other than the fact that they're not genetic. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I, I do agree with you, and I think that, that there's a lot of interesting points, but I, I still don't see quite why um, we need to really kind of revolutionize our theory to account for these things. I, I sort of feel like these things have been, are being studied and have been studied before a call for, for example, extending with a capital E uh, the evolutionary synthesis. And so I think one of my questions is, is um, what kind of truly new predictions can we get from these, from this, this sort of idea that we have to kind of revolutionize evolutionary theory? And like, from my perspective as an empirical researcher, I sort of feel like we're all just carrying on doing our research anyway, um, regardless of you know, whether or not there's been this sort of theoretical overhaul. I, I, I sort of wonder to myself, what's the utility of this in terms of at the ground level? Um, what, what, what new predictions for someone like myself who studies development and studies, um, studies how culture evolves and how we may have got from animal forms of empathy to human forms of empathy. What, what kind of new questions can I be asking that I wouldn't have been asking using a Darwinian approach uh, in, in the more sort of traditional sense? I, I sort of, I find this slight mismatch between the kind of ways I, we conduct our science and and um, yeah. and, and and how and, and these problems, these theoretical problems. I, I don't I know. Sort of, I, I'm trying to work out the usefulness of this. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that necessarily we're talking about new questions, but yeah. we're definitely well, talking about. Well, I feel about... like a synthesis should be asking new questions. Well, isn't that the point? That it should be, it should be providing an opportunity for us to make predictions that we wouldn't have normally made or study phenomena that we wouldn't have normally necessarily studied and. I feel like many of the phenomena, at least from my perspective of studying culture, is these are new. These are kind of new questions, but they're not incompatible with what with what came before. Uh, so, okay, you, you raised actually two or three different points here. So, let, give me a second. Um, first of all, yeah, asking new questions certainly one possible possible outcome. Uh, arriving at different answers for the same questions is another one, mm -hmm. uh, and that's like something the predictions that though. Yeah, the predictions are going to be different. Um, and, but how? Uh, in well, let me give you an example. So that gives you, gets to the second point. Like, for instance, uh, the entire phenomenon of phenotypic plasticity, mm -hmm. which has been known, as I said, that this is the notion that the same genotype gives different morphologies or behaviors in response to different environments. This was known literally from the beginning of the 20th century, from the moment in which the word phenotype and genotype were introduced mm -hmm. in biological literature. And it was ignored in terms of theoretical structure, in terms of what the role of phenotypic plasticity might be in evolution until very recently. In fact, there's a famous paper in American Naturalist, which is one of the most prestigious journals in the field, uh, back a few decades ago, that literally was entitled The Problem of Environment, as in how do we get rid of this noise stuff that we don't really want to take care of and, con and focus on the genetic yeah. part. I mean, right? But do you think ignored means it's incompatible, though? Or maybe no, I don't. That's what I'm that, saying. But incompatible is one thing, entailed is another. I think that nobody's arguing, at least I'm certainly mm. not arguing, that the novel stuff is incompatible with the older one, which is why it's not a replacement of a theory, it's an expansion of a theory. If it were incompatible, yeah. then you would have to replace it. Like, for instance, general relativity is incompatible with Newtonian yeah, yeah. mechanics. Mm -hmm. You gotta throw it away. Uh, we're not talking about incompatible necessarily. What we're talking about is, is all this new stuff, was it, what is it entailed and can be easily accommodated by the old theoretical framework? And I think the answer there is no. For instance, one of the things that is not um, uh, uh, taken into account by the old framework is the fact that because of things like uh, epigenetic inheritance and phenotypic plasticity, 
organisms can respond very quickly in a very short uh, time to dramatic changes in the environment and survive as a population, hang on for a few more generations that you would have predicted if, they, if their response was based just on natural selection on genetic variants. Tim, do you want to? Yeah, just a, just a quick point. So I think epigenetic inheritance, these forms of non-genetic inheritance, can look very uh, challenging if we think of the dominant framework as a set of hypotheses. A set of hypotheses saying biology is all about the inheritance of genes and nothing else. But of course, if instead we think of it as a set of tools, then it starts to look a little bit different. So the architects of the modern synthesis, when they built the discipline of population genetics, roughly speaking, the discipline that we use to track how evolution changes populations over time, they didn't know what genes were made of anyway. So they needed to build a body of theory that could cope with ignorance about the mechanism of inheritance. It's therefore not surprising that you can actually use that theory or tools within that theory in a modified way, to be sure. But you can use some of those tools to get a handle on epigenetic inheritance as well. So yes, there are really kind of interesting new phenomena here. No, the old tools can't just be applied kind of in an unmodified sort of way, but a decent amount of sort of creative refashioning can often give us what we need, I but, think, I mean, to I think that's what I feel. Stuff. I don't feel that we this sort of idea of, at least in the public perception, that we might need to kind of rehaul everything. I, I sort of feel that that's an unfair way of explaining the progress that's been made since you know, the first, you know, at least to my understanding, like the, the expanse that's already happened in evolutionary um, biological research is already encompassing many of these sort of phenomena. I, I just, I don't see why it's necessary to, um, to challenge or to kind of re to create this kind of idea that it, 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 it needs revolutionizing. Right. Um, well, for I, one thing, I just, because I, feel, I disagree yeah. with Tim. Yeah. I, I don't I, think I that population genetics can uh, yeah. actually handle this stuff at all. I see, population yeah. genetics got into trouble already before we discovered all mm. this stuff. It turns out that population genetic uh, uh, treatment of things like allelic differences, these are different versions of the same gene, is very, very limited. You cannot do analytical uh, you know, equations that describe more than a couple of loci interacting in, you know, in, in very limited ways. Population genetics was already hitting a limit before all this stuff came out. Uh, I've seen very, very few and very bad attempts at actually including things like plasticity, epigenetics, et cetera, in population genetic models. Yeah. It just can't handle it. The mathematics is just not there, which is why a lot of population geneticists these days don't do that stuff mm. at all. They go into heavy computer simulations, for instance, and it turns out because they can generate, you know, they can simulate thousands of loci and their more complex interactions environments. And it turns out, and you were talking about predictions, that in that case, the predictions are in fact qualitatively different. So one of the basic concepts in standard evolutionary theory is that of an adaptive landscape, right? Mm -hmm. So an adaptive landscape is a mathematical construct where you have, imagine a three-dimensional diagram where you have the frequency of one gene on one axis, the frequency of another gene on another axis, so the two of them together give you a frequency of a genotype. And then there is these peaks and valleys that correspond to the fitness of those different combinations of genes. So high peaks means that a particular combination of genes have high fitness. Low you know, valleys mean that a particular combination of genes have very low fitness. Now, one of the standing problems in evolutionary theory for literally almost a century was, so how does natural selection bring populations from one peak to a separate peak without passing for a valley? You can't pass for a valley because that would mean that natural selection would have to actually temporarily favor maladaptive genotypes 
things that don't work very well because you know in the future we're gonna go there. But natural selection doesn't think about the future. It's a natural process. There's no thinking going on, right? So that's that that can't be. So people say, well, maybe it can jump from one place from one place to another. People model the jumps and no, nah, that's not gonna happen. It's not there are no realistic situations under which these things actually happen, these jumps happen. So for a long time, people just got stuck there yeah. until uh, people like Sergei Gavilets, for instance, who is a mathematician at the University of Tennessee, said, but wait a minute, the entire theory here is based on no environmental interactions, uh, two or three genes at a time, that's not realistic. What happens if we simulate you know, 2,000 genes at a time with complex environmental interactions, which now we can begin to do because we have the computer resources? And he found that peaks and valleys disappear. In a multidimensional uh, uh, sort of landscape, there are no peaks and valleys. The structures are completely different, and the dynamic of evolutionary change is completely different. I think that's a pretty dramatic change. But R.A. Fisher was skeptical of the idea of uh, an adaptive landscape for just the same kinds of reasons True. back in 1930. True, but, but, but he didn't have an answer. No, but right. what I mean is these are not necessarily kind of, these are, these are forms of progress Forms of progress some people are skeptical of, to be sure. So I don't want to give the impression that there's no dispute. Mm. But quite often you can see early incarnations of these tools then being kind of adapted in an interesting plastic kind of way yeah. to grapple with these problems. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, I think that's why I see it. It's not that I agree that these problems hadn't been dealt with before, but I don't think it means that people weren't already starting to think about them. And um, and so in that regard, I, yeah. So I sort of I see that it's it's more of an issue of of where people have focused their attention or like what challenges they've managed to deal with yet, but there's still so many left to deal with. Um, and like, for example, we at that, like now we're just starting to understand, we don't even really quite know what, like for example, in terms of culture, like in animal behavior, like what impact culture is having on, we know that they have culture, but we're still trying to understand like to what extent it really is having an impact on, on genetic evolution in animals. And like, because we still, you know, it's, but I don't know if it's needed to, to, I sort of feel like we need to have a, a common ground first in trying to understand uh, what these behaviors look like. But um, am I wrong in thinking, because yeah. when I was a, in university, the, the sort of, the religious teaching was that you couldn't have things in the environment or things that happened during development or the experience of the animal or the cell wouldn't then feed back into the genetic feedstuff. So whatever happened to the cell or the, the creature, whatever it learnt, whatever, if it got run over by an anvil delivery lorry, it wasn't going to affect the onward march of the, the passing on of the genes. Now, when you're talking about these, methyl, you know, the, these chemicals, that is something that was in the environment of the cell, affected that cell in its life, but then gets attached to the genetic code, which is going to be passed on, which is the equivalent 
just using an analogy of you learning something in life, like it would be great if I was taller because the fruit is further up, and that knowledge attaching itself to your genes and being passed on. Now, that's just an analogy, but that is quite a massive change. But I don't think and that's how people, I mean, that's not how I understood evolution when I was taught. Well, I'm older than you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I sort of but also, like I have, I've interviewed. The perception of evolutionary theory and actually how people study it and think about it in actually the field seems to be. But I think sort of the way that it's often communicated or simplified in textbooks. Uh, is the problem. I think you're right. And um, I've got kids d d about yeah. to do A-levels. And, I, I, sort of and I looked at their textbook, and it was the most appalling pile of old rubbish I'd ever seen. <laughs> it's the most badly taught I think science that's the problem ever. To me, is that, yeah, people... No, I, I, yeah. I disagree. I, I, what, with the I textbook? Said, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the textbook are a pile of rubbish. That's true. Um, <laughs> it's um, encouraging, isn't it? Because this is what but, everybody learns. It's right, <laughs> yes, I know. And that is yeah. a but it's not a problem, just to be fair, not just in biology. It's a lot of textbooks in a lot of fields are, are you know, <laughs> questionable. Maybe pile of rubbish is a little strong, but questionable for sure. But no, no, I, I actually... I, 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 pretty sure that I've seen heavy disagreement in technical papers uh, by major people in the field. We're not talking just about what is taught at the undergraduate level. Uh, we are talking about major disagreements at, at professional meetings, about uh, you know, disagreement in print, uh, about the different relevance of evolutionary uh, mechanisms and processes. However, I'm going to push back slightly on one thing. It seems like the two of you almost I begin to characterize what I'm saying as that there is a need for evolution, and I'm not saying that. In fact, a, a need for revolution. I'm not yeah, asking. I, mean, I think that's how it comes across sometimes. That it's like you know that we have to uh, resynthesize the yes. sort of. And, and to me, synthesize entails this idea of of coming up with new concepts that kind of move beyond what we've known before and create, for example, new predictions and. Sure. Like to me, I suppose what I'm wondering is: if, do you want to extend evolution with a big E or a small E? I don't know how big is your E. Well. <laughs> um, I mean, look, what we're talking about is exactly what has just happened already in the past, right? The, the extended, the, the, the modern synthesis was itself an extension, not a revolution, mm -hmm. not a rejection of the original Darwinism. Yeah. The original Darwinism is still there. The, there are two ideas in the original Darwinism, natural selection and, and common descent, right? Now, on top of those, the modern synthesis added other things, right? So mechanisms of inheritance, population genetic, uh, you know, description of populations, and so on and so forth. And all we're talking about, at least most people uh, that are talking about the extended synthesis, are talking about retaining those two core uh, uh, series and then adding more stuff uh, on top of that. So I wouldn't categorize that as a revolution in any well, at least we agree on that. I'm not sure why is it that I, ha I certainly have the strong impression of biology that of all the, the sciences, biology is the most defensive of its theory. It's like there's the curtain, and you can see that there's a fight going on behind the curtain. But if you ask any of the people, they pop their head out and they go, no, no nothing's going on, don't worry, everything's fine, we're all in complete I agreement. I think there's quite here. an open discussion, a quite a big open fight about this. Well, we're having one now, but, but, it, but there's, um, there's, a very, there's a very open discussion yeah, and it's I'd very, very bad. It's on. very, very bad tempered sometimes <laughs> yeah. and it's very overtly bad tempered yeah. sometimes with factions accusing the other of not being properly scientific, of having yeah. all kinds of ulterior motives. Yeah. There's a really obvious reason why sometimes evolutionary theorists don't want to wear their dirty laundry in public. Which is? And that's because the minute evolutionary theorists disagree, then a bunch of creationists will jump in, jump on board. Right. But there's, there is, there's, there's an unhelpful polarization, I think, mm. around this debate sometimes. 
So you do have people who will literally say, natural selection is the only known process that can explain adaptation. Yes, I've met them. Now that's clearly false. Yeah. Organisms can learn things over the course of their own lives and thereby be better adapted. Of course, the very fact that they can learn may be explained by, adapt by natural selection as a process, and that might be what explains those capacities in, in the first place. Um, and so the people saying we need to think about other mechanisms are not usually trying to say something that's meant to be incompatible with those mm. basic elements of Darwinism, as, as, as Massimo's already pointed out. And you get this kind of strange and I think sometimes rather unhelpful fight that then emerges at that point, mm. when frankly everybody could simply agree that these are valuable extensions mm. Whether the E is big or small, I don't really mind. It yeah, I think we all matter. agree that these are really important questions and phenomena that we, we all must understand better, I think. Okay, well, none of us are in disagreement about Well, Let's that. go back to the reductionism work. Because mm. when you talk to physicists, reductionism comes up all the time. When you talk to biologists, they avoid it. And yet it's where it's most interesting. You can say, look, all causation, everything that's caused must flow from the atoms to the genes and on up. And that causation can't go the other way. And if you talk to a proper reductionist, a physicist, they'll go, yes, that's it. So behavior, free will, thought, consciousness, none of it exists. You think it exists, it just doesn't. It's atoms bumping, and that's it. Wake up and smell the barbed wire. Um, Which you can't, because you can't smell the atoms directly. So. Quite. But is there a sense in which some of the things you were talking about are saying, well, maybe causation doesn't always come up from the atoms to the genes? That, that causation runs sometimes the other way or not? Let's at least get that, because that would be a very revolutionary so thing. Sort of talk, are you talking about, you're asking a question about levels of explanation in terms no, of... No, not explanation, causation. OK, levels of causality. Causation. Sort of Mayer's idea of ultimate and proximate, I suppose, is what you want to talk about. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I, I interpret it differently, but... Okay. Can I, can I have uh, a go? Please, yeah, yeah. Stand so, well back. I, 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 think, I think that... Um, there is a group of biologists, uh, some of whom are very good friends of mine, who <laughs> like to say that uh, causation in biology needs to be understood reciprocally, right? right? Now, here's what they usually mean by this, and they're right, and it's also not remotely challenging to that basic physical picture that I think you put forward. What they have in mind is, is things like this. Um, a bunch of people figure out how to milk uh, cows, right? Because they figure out how to milk cows, there's then this wonderful new source of calories on offer in the shape of milk, which and then mean and cheese, which then means that genes that make people lactose tolerant are suddenly really good to have. And then people who are then lactose tolerant, it's then good for them to learn how to milk some cows. So you get this reciprocal interaction between the milking of the cows and the genes that give you lactose tolerance and a bit more milking of the cows and a bit more lactose tolerance. Absolutely true. Who, I mean, a very you know, well-confirmed bit of science. Doesn't tell you anything weird that any physicist should need to disagree with, it seems okay, to me. Okay. But it does also make the point rather effectively that you need to think of biological causation in this cyclical way. Right. 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 Okay. No, I, I agree um, uh, with him about this. So, so I think that true emergence, which mm -hmm. is another way to describe what we were talking about, yeah. that is um, phenomena that are truly coming out of nowhere, out of a, at a new level of, of complexity. I think it's very difficult to cash that out in any kind of coherent way. I, I haven't heard any good coherent defense, coherent defense of the existence of true emergence. Emergence is exactly what you just described. Is these kind of you know interactions that are at different uh, uh, levels uh, of description 
But fundamentally, yes, it's all quarks, electrons, strings, whatever the hell you want. Now, here's one thing that doesn't follow, follow however, and there I think is where the physicists are wrong. Just because everything is made of quarks, let's say this table, it doesn't mean that there is no solid table right here. Of course there is. And in fact, the level of description that is most useful to me as a human being is not the quark level, because if you tell me, hey, don't you, don't you see that these are all a bunch of quarks? No, I don't see it, and I can't do anything with it. I can't do any carpentry on the quarks. I do carpentry on the wood, right? So different. that's why you were bringing up different levels of description. Yeah. Levels of description are fundamentally important in science. So yep. to say things like, because everything made of, made of work, then there is no consciousness, is a ridiculous thing that only a physicist could say. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Just to be pretty clear. Yeah, consciousness, is that emergent or not? Oh, I don't want to get into this discussion. I asked you the question. Come on, come on. I mean, I think, well, I, I think there's you two study ways it. of approach. I don't study consciousness. Well, you study animals that are conscious. Uh, yeah, but I mean, most animals. It's not the same thing. No, it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not the same thing. I think uh, there's a, it is in some ways an emergent property uh, of biological, but I do think it's also got a biological basis because it really pays to be conscious. Um, yeah. lots of, I mean, animals to have basic consciousness is to be able to, to be able to react appropriately to your environment. Yes, I don't think anyone so, who yeah, defends yeah, emergence, so and I'm not trying to. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, I, 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 uh, I think the fact that we're finding evidence of, for example, that I don't know if anyone saw this, but there's a very nice new paper showing fish um, show levels of, of basic consciousness, mm. uh, which. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I thought I could eat them without problems, but now I can't. So, I mean, fish, if fish can show these basic awareness of themselves, at least they can recognize themselves yeah. as different to others. I think, what I personally think as a biologist is we've got to think of what pressures are shaping the emergence of these properties in different, in different taxa, yeah. uh, rather than sort of focusing on a quite an anthropocentric view, which is, I think, perhaps where that question came from. But, um, so, I think we need to look at it more, and I think... We need to learn more from things like fish. And I'm really sorry, but we're out of time. So could I ask you to join me in thanking our panelists? Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Massimo Pagliucci, Zana Clay, and Tim Lewins. If you'd like to further explore the limits of evolution, why not give a listen to episode 94, After Evolution, or find out what evolution can help us explain in episode 121 in The Evolution of Suicide with neuropsychologist Nicholas Humphreys. Now you've listened to the episode, head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review as this really helps us know what you like about the podcast and what you'd like to hear more of. Thanks again and please do tune in next week for more debates and talks with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.